morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. I love that. So I, I want to make a statement. Um, I don't want to be too bold, but I think it's one that might be uh, something we can universally agree on. Bold statement, but it's this. It's that we all like a good deal. Anybody not like a good deal? Uh, I, I'm that person who, if I'm buying something online, I'm Googling uh, Costco coupon code or Best Buy coupon code. Anybody else do that same thing? And I'll spend 25 minutes searching, probably downloading hundreds of viruses on my computer. Like, click here, free coupon, right? And then it's like, wait, this is not what I thought it was. Because we love a good deal. So you can understand why uh, this condo company that was marketing this brand new high rise on South Padre Island, they said, this is your opportunity, right? You know the line, like get in on the ground floor to get ocean views and this amazing opportunity. It won't last long. Go now. And they further enticed people. They said this new development that they're building on South Padre Island, uh, which is just a narrow kind of slice of land off the coast of Texas, Uh, real estate's a premium. So they're going to build this big high rise structure. And it was going to have the finest furnishings, Italian marble floors, granite countertops, ocean views. And it was going to be affordable because of the high rise structure of over 130 units. So they start selling these units and getting people on board and construction progresses. They get the the shell of the building done. It rises. I don't know how many stories, but well above uh, the land. And then they begin to notice something. South Padre Island is rather sandy, and they had built the main structure of the condo uh, with an attached parking garage. Now, the condo unit itself as a high-rise was much heavier, and it sunk 16 inches. The problem is the parking garage that it was attached to sunk only eight. That differential meant that all of the support pillars underneath this condo literally began to shear in half. Now, if you were buying a condo and you were up on one of the upper floors, you don't want the support pillars of your brand new condo to be shearing in half, right? And what they decided to do was say, uh, you know, if you've bought a unit, don't worry, we'll make it safer. Uh, It'll be better than ever. And this is where you insert the narrator voice. It was not better than ever, right? (laughs) They did what they could, but alas, their plans uh, came to nothing. They couldn't save the building. And in 2008, They brought it down with a controlled explosion at a loss of over $60 million. Oops, someone's still paying for that. And I tell you that story to make this one simple point. This is one of our baseline points this morning is that foundations matter, right? What something is built on fundamentally matters. Now, in the case of that condo building, right, they had the best furnishings. It was going to have Italian marble floors, granite countertops. But y'all, can I just tell you, uh, your Italian marble floor doesn't matter if the structure isn't sound, right? All of that is going to be for nothing. And and so uh, they had to ultimately uh, take a loss on it because foundations matter. So I want you to ask and think about this question. What are you building your life on? What are the foundational things that you are setting the weight of your life, your convictions? What what, what is the truth that you are building your life on? Because it fundamentally matters. Now, the thing that's tricky about foundations is we don't often think about them. We take them for granted. Probably none of us walking into church this morning walked through the doors and thought, huh, I wonder what the footings and foundations are like in this building. You think it's sound? No, we just kind of assume that it is, unless you're maybe an engineer, construction person, maybe you think about those things, but we just kind of assume that the foundation is sound until there's problems, right? You might notice a cracked wall, or you might notice a crack in uh, cement in your basement, and it's not until the symptoms emerge that we begin to question, is the foundation really sound? 
because foundations matter. So this morning, we're starting this series called Pillars. And in this series, our goal is to explore these foundational teachings of the Christian faith and to explore what it means to have a real relational encounter with the living God. So we're going to talk about things like the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to talk about things like creation. We're going to talk about things like sin and salvation, these foundational teachings that are core and foundational to what we believe. But here's what I want us to understand, church. As we talk about these things, we're not just talking about dry, lifeless doctrines. We are talking about a real dynamic relationship with the living God. Let, let me read for you in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy, this is where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church leader named Timothy. And he says this in verse 14. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions that he'd written previously in 1 Timothy so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, right? And, and when we talk about God's household church, what we have to understand is we don't mean the building. We don't mean the church as a 501c3 organization. When Paul talks about the church of the living God, he is talking about the communal gathering of people. Look to your left and right. That's the church. It's the people that we're gathered with. He says, uh, let, let me read this again. He says, so you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Catch this, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so the core and foundational teachings as a church, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're proclaiming is what Paul says is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So I, I want to begin this morning with this foundational question. Who is God? And, and this is a really simple question, uh, but I think there are profound implications and the implication of this is what Genesis 1.26 tells, tells us. Genesis 1.26 tells us that you and I are created in the image of God. We are created in his likeness. In other words, we reflect who God is, his attributes and his character. We reflect that into the world around us. So when we answer that question, who is God, what we discover is we learn something about what it means to be human, what it means to exist as God's children. Now, there's all sorts of, of potential answers to that question. Uh, at various times and places, uh, some have said, uh, maybe God is what the deists suppose. And, and deism is this belief that God sort of created the world and was like, it's good, and then just stepped back and was disconnected. And so maybe you're someone who, when you think of God, you imagine some sort of distant and disconnected being in the sky who has no bearing on your daily life. Over the past several weeks, you've heard Pastor Steve talk about this idea of secular humanism. And secular humanism is this idea that you and I as human beings, we're creative and uh, we have enough ingenuity that we can solve all our own problems, which essentially makes humans our own God. That is not the God of the Christian faith. Maybe for others, you have sort of this a cartoon depiction of the old guy in the sky with a big, long, white beard. Or, or maybe for you, God is this sort of uh, divine, angry cop who's just waiting for you to break a, a rule, right? But this question of who is God is fundamentally important. It becomes a foundational core of the Christian faith. And the answer is vital. So this morning, we're going to talk about this foundational pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity, now, the doctrine of the Trinity at its core is this. We believe in one God in three persons. Now, let, let me give the caveat to this. So I got 22 minutes left, and some of y'all are waiting for lunch, so you're, you're counting. I know you watch the clock. You think I don't see you looking. I, I can see you. 
waiting for lunch. I, I know. I watch it too. I just don't always pay attention like I should and get you out on time. So for that, I apologize. Uh, anyway, so doctrine of the Trinity. Let me say this. I have 20 minutes to talk about it. Two things. One, I'm not going to answer all your questions, right? There's, there's just no way. Two, uh, there are endless books starting from the earliest centuries of Christianity that you could read about the Trinity. I've taken an entire graduate course on the doctrine of the Trinity. And at the end of the day, after I look at all of the stuff, I step back and I go, man, I still don't have any idea. Right? And so what, we, what we're going to talk about this morning is something, it's like Paul says in Corinthians, we see through a mirror darkly. We, we're going to get it. And yet we're at the same moment, we're like, I kind of get it. We're not. Right? The doctrine of this Trinity is a beautiful mystery that God is one God in three persons. But here, here's the thing. I don't want that to be discouraging. I want the mystery of who God is to draw us into having this deeper awe. Listen, if I had God all figured out, if you had God all figured out, we would be God. So I love the idea that I serve and have given my life to a God that I can't fully comprehend or understand. And I want that mystery to draw us into a deeper awe and a deeper relationship with who he is. So as we talk about the Trinity, let me uh, flesh out a couple things. The word Trinity uh, is sometimes pointed out that it's not in the Bible. And to that, I would say you're absolutely correct. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But what we find all over scripture is this reference to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so at the history and teaching of the church, the, the word Trinity is a theological term that the church has used to describe what we mean by one God in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what I want to do this morning is show you just a couple places where we see uh, this teaching in scripture. In Matthew chapter three, beginning in verse 13, we see this teaching of one God, three persons. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee uh, to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so right away in the gospel of Matthew, as Jesus' ministry is beginning, there's this moment where John the Baptist baptizes him in the Jordan River and we see something happen, right? We see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and we hear this voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And so right away at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see this father, son, and Holy Spirit dynamic. Uh, let me draw your attention likewise to 1 Peter chapter one. There it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge, catch this, of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Again, do you notice that language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So let me flesh this out for us. We're going to put this image on the screen. Uh, this in church history has been called the Trinity Shield. And this was a way that from the earliest foundations, uh, the church attempted to teach new believers the doctrine of the Trinity. And so what we see up here is that God is, is one. We believe in one God. And yet God exists as simultaneously from eternity to eternity as three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now what's important to recognize is it's not that the Holy Spirit is one-third God. Right? This is not one God in three parts. The Holy Spirit is fully divine. Jesus the Son is fully divine, fully God. The Father is fully God. 
And yet, simultaneously, there exists a differentiation. The Father is not the Son. He's distinct. And so we believe in one God in three persons. But there is one divine will. There is one divine nature. And God is utterly unified, even as he exists as the one in three. All right, do we need to take a breath? How are we doing? Right? I told you, right? We, we see it, and you both simultaneously get it and don't get it. So, so here, here's what I want us to caution us with. The temptation that I'm concerned about is that we write off as impractical the mysterious things about God that we don't understand. And the doctrine of the Trinity, when you look at it, if you read about it, it can get deeply theological and deeply philosophical real fast. And my concern is we look at it and we go, wow, that's complicated. I don't understand it. And and we look at it and we go, "Ah, does that really have any implication for day-to-day living? Is is it really practical? And, And so my goal this morning is to look at this key question. How does the doctrine of the Trinity that God is one God and three persons, how does that impact our faith in daily living? Right? What, what difference does believing that, what difference does that make? How in the world is that a foundational truth for daily living? And so I want to draw our attention back to this core truth that you and I are made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. And so when we study and reflect on God as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we understand more and more about the image of God and the image that we are created in and who we're to reflect. So let's walk through this. Uh, What does the doctrine of the Trinity teach us about who God is? And what are the implications of this for daily life? So the first thing I want to draw our attention to is this idea that God exists in community. We talk about having a relationship with God and we talk about God being a relational being. And what we have to recognize is that before the world began, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has existed from eternity and will exist on through into eternity as a God who is relational in communion with himself. So let me read 1 John 4, 7 to 16 that again highlights this idea that God is communal. It says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Now, let me stop there. That gets dense theologically real quick. Notice what he says in verse 13. This is how we know we live in him. In him is God and he in us. He's given us of his Spirit. Right? And this speaks to the relational reality of God. The, the Holy Spirit, we believe when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you. That God takes up presence in your life. And this is the relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who invites you and I to be in relationship with him. And one of the simple application points of this, church, is that you and I are called to be in community with both God and others. We have to recognize if God is relational as we believe he is in the Christian faith, if God exists in community and we are made in his image, church, you and I must recognize that we are made for community. But here's here's the challenge, right? Community is difficult. 
When we try to live in community, when we try to engage in deep and meaningful relationships, we come up against the brokenness of other people. We come up against our own brokenness. We face our own insecurities. And sometimes community gets really difficult. And so what happens is when community gets difficult, we're tempted to say, I don't really need community, right? I'm fine on my own. And I think one of the greatest temptations in our culture is sort of a radical individualism that says, I can do life on my own. And sometimes as a pastor, people will ask me, listen, pastor, can, can I just experience God on the fishing boat or in the deer stand or out on a walk? Uh, can I do that just as well uh, on my own as opposed to the church? And, and I, I, I say, no. And, and it's not that there's something magical about this building. It's church. I need people in my life. I need the communal encouragement of dwelling together with other people. It's those relationships of faith that have bolstered my own faith in moments of doubt and discouragement. I meet monthly with a mentor. I meet weekly with an accountability partner. I'm part of a small group and I attend church, not because I'm a pastor, not because it's my job, but church, I do it because I desperately need a community of people to help me in my faith journey. And I think we have to recognize at the core of our being, we are designed in the image of God as relational beings. And, and I love, by the way, when, when science affirms what scripture teaches so I was reading a journal article this week. It's called Social Relationships and Health, a Flashpoint for Health Policy. It was as dry as the title sounds, so I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it was from the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. L let me summarize it for you. What they did was they looked at uh, healthy social relationships and they drew uh, correlations to physical health. So let me read this for you. They said, for adult men and women with the fewest social ties, the risk of death is more than twice as high. This held true even when other factors such as socioeconomic status and health behaviors were considered. Did you catch that? They, they cited not, not only this study, but several other studies that indicated that where the fewest social ties exist, the risk of death becomes twice as likely. Now, further, they said this. They said, for those with coronary heart disease, the socially isolated are 2.4 times more likely to die of a cardiac event. Isn't, that, that is amazing to me. You take two people, both with coronary heart disease, one who is socially isolated, one who is living in relationship, and the one who is socially isolated is 2.4 times more likely to die of a cardiac event. That, that, that is mind-blowing to me. They said lack of social ties has been associated with impaired immune function, that lack of social ties impacts cardiovascular disease, blood pressure, cancer recovery, and it actually slows wound healing, physical wound healing. And what they're noticing and what they're looking at is all of the ways in which a lack of social connection has profound physical impacts on our body. And I look at it and I say, yes, because we are designed in the image of a God who is relational and we are called to live and to dwell in community. How, how well do you do it living and dwelling in intentional community? Now, here's the second applicable point from the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is love. Did you notice that statement in 1 John 4, 8, 9? Let me recap it for you. 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, that's a profound statement when John says that God is love. It's not just that God does acts of love. It's not just that God is loving. It's at the very nature, the very core of who God is. He exists as a God of love. And this goes back to this idea that God exists in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we recognize that God lives and exists in love, this forms and shapes how we do community. 
So let me flesh this out for us. John 17. Again, this is the, uh, a moment where Jesus is praying. John 17, 1, it says this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, right? Did you catch that? He's the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Did you notice all that talk of glory? And did you notice the relationship that's happening there? Jesus says, Father, I glorify you with the glory that you've given me. And what we see is that the Trinity in a relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in this place where the Son is glorifying the Father and the Father is glorifying the Son and they're glorifying the Spirit. It is a sacrificial, other-oriented. The Father is pouring out to the Son. The Son is pouring out to the Spirit. And and it's this other-oriented kind of relationship. And so when we say that God is love, we are describing the way that God exists exists in community. Now, the application, church, for you and I is that likewise, we are called to live in loving, selfless, other-oriented, sacrificial community. This one's tough. I mean, think about your relationships. Let, let, Let me break this down even more practically. Anybody struggle with keeping score in relationships? And we're in church, so the default answer is like, no, we're great at it. But when we really break it down, let's be honest with ourselves. How often do we find ourselves keeping score? How often do you think about this friendship that you have that I'm always initiating? They never reach out to me. I'm always sending the email. I'm always sending the phone call. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to let them uh, reach out to me. And we get frustrated and we get resentful. Now, how would this idea that we're to live in sacrificial, other-oriented community, how might it influence that? Would it be, you know what? Maybe they're going through a difficult season. I don't know. I'm going to just reach out as... They come to mind and let them know that I'm, I'm there for them. Or, or think about marriage. Any, anybody have this problem of, uh, of being self-oriented in marriage? You ever keep score in your marriage? There's moments where I think like, okay, uh, Lauren's taken out the trash uh, twice this week. I've, I've taken it out 10 times. I'm just going to let it pile up till she sees and takes it out. Boom. <laughs> I've never done that because that would go really poorly in my house. Can I just say that? <laughs> but, or, or think about this. Like when we had our first child, right? And, and the baby would be up in the night. I would play this game where like the baby's crying and I'm like, I'm not getting up. So I'm like pretending to be asleep. And my wife would ever so lovingly like elbow in the side. And I would like to tell you that I received that as like, I receive your elbow of love and I will go to get this child we created. <laughs> in reality, I was like, yo, if you're hitting me in the ribs, you're awake enough to go get the baby, right? Like that's my thought. That, Listen, that is not a Jesus-oriented thought process, right? That is not me serving my spouse. That is me being like, I got up five times last night. It's your turn tonight. But listen, and any time I'm keeping score and I'm keeping track of who served the most, that is where I've departed from this image of what marriage and what relationship and what community should be like. Now, not that there aren't moments where you set boundaries and have hard conversations. That's part of love too. But I think when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, when we see Jesus saying to the Father, I'm, I'm pouring back to you the glory that you've given. Like, that, that is a mind-blowing way of doing relationship. But church, I think that that is the kind of relationship that you and I are called to. So God exists in community. God exists in love. And he, we are called likewise to live in loving community. Finally, there's this uh, reality that we see 
in John, 1 John chapter 4, that God sends and God saves. Notice 1 John 4, 9 to 10. Let me again recap this for us. 1 John 4, 9 to 10. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Notice what that tells us. That you have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in this relationship of love. And as a demonstration of the love of God, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is sent to this world. He becomes a human in the flesh, remaining fully God, and he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we rightly deserved. And and sometimes I I have uh, two questions that I'm frequently asked as a pastor. One is, why, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? Why did Jesus come? And the other, and it's kind of associated with this, is, doesn't, doesn't that make God kind of a cosmic child abuser? He sends his son to be sacrificed on the cross? What, what, what kind of God is this? But did you notice what 1 John says? It says that Jesus comes as a demonstration of the love of God. Because listen, church, love is always outward moving. Love is always focused on the other. And this created order, you and I, these beings that God created, he sees us in our brokenness and God loves us so much that he sends the son as the demonstration of God's love. I mean, God is God. He could have saved us in any way he wanted, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose to send Jesus as a demonstration of how much God loves you. Church, I don't even understand that. On my bad days, there's moments I'm like, I don't see much lovable in me today. I woke up grumpy. I've been annoying to myself. You ever have a day like that? Like, I don't even want to be around me. And yet the reality is that God sees all of my mess and loves me so much, right, that he was willing to send his own son to die for me. John 10 says this. This is Jesus uh, speaking. John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Again, that Trinitarian language. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen and I must bring them in also that they too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, not uh, only to take it up again. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up. This is the command I receive from the father. Listen, when we imagine God the father as some sort of cosmic child abuser who sends his son to die and to suffer, that's bad Trinitarian theology. There is one divine will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in total unity make this decision to send the Son to die on our behalf. And did you notice what Jesus says? No one took my life from me. He says, I laid it down of my own accord. That he is the willing sacrifice for our sins. And it's the love of God that is compelling the Son to come and to die for us. It is the sending love of God that leads Jesus to willingly lay down his life on the cross. Now, here's the application point for this church, is that likewise, you and I are to live as a sent people. When we experience the saving reality of being in a relationship with Jesus and having our sins forgiven, not only are you given a new life, not only is the image of God being restored and reformed and reshaped in us, but we have a new purpose and a new mission in life. Let me read for you John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 to 22. 
It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his sides and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said this, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Side note, did you notice the Trinitarian language of father, son, and Holy Spirit, right? Here again, we see that language. But did you notice what Jesus tells the disciples? He says, just as I was sent, he now turns and he says, so I am sending you. And listen, it's not that we save anybody, but church, it's that you and I are called to be on a mission to point other people back to Jesus. We are called to live as a sent people, just as we are created in the image of God whose love drove him to a sacrificial place of service. You and I are called and sent to be a people who live and serve in the spheres of influence, in the context which God has called you to. And, and listen, what I love about this is I really identify with the disciples. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, they had the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. The disciples are not like these courageous, like, yeah, we're on mission. They're behind closed doors like, y'all, I think we're in trouble. Like Jesus that we've been following, he's been crucified. We gave our life to him. What now? And there's moments, church, where we find ourselves like the disciples huddled in fear. We look at culture and we look at all the changes culturally that are happening around us. And sometimes we're nervous about our faith. And yet Jesus appears and he says, listen, peace be with you. Let your heart be settled let your fear be still. And I look, it, it's significant to me that Jesus says it twice. And, and there's moments in my life where I'm so rattled and I'm so fearful that it's like God has to tell me a couple times, it's all right. I got this. It's significant to me that Jesus finds these, these terrified men. He says, peace be with you. Twice, peace be with you. And then he says, listen, the father sent me on this mission. He says, now I'm sending you. And, and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And church, what I want us to recognize is no matter the times and situations and circumstances we find ourselves in, the Father sent the Son and the Son has breathed on us the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit and the presence of God in us that empowers us to live and to walk our faith boldly as a sent people. So let me ask you, what sphere of influence has God blessed you with? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and God has called you to raise your family. Are you living redemptively with a gospel purpose there? Maybe you're a small business owner and you have some employees and you have a team around you. Are you living there with a redemptive gospel-centered purpose? Maybe you work in middle management in a major corporation. Maybe you work on the manufacturing line and your sphere of influence is the people to your right and left. Wherever you're at, whatever sphere of influence, are you living as a sent person with a redemptive focus and mission to say, how can I point people back to the love of Jesus? And what I want to suggest to you, church, is that it's the very doctrine of one God, three persons, a God who is communal, a God who lives in other-oriented, loving community, and a God who sends his son and likewise sends us has practical implications for everyday life. So let me close with this summary. As we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, and again, right, I know I didn't answer all the questions. I don't know all the answers to all the questions, right? My hope is that we leave here with a renewed sense of awe and mystery about the God that we serve who like we get and yet he's beyond us, right? But I believe church that we are called into relationship with a communal God of love. 
and that he saves us. And that salvation means being released from sin and we are restored in God's image and we have a renewed mission and purpose in life. You are set free from sin. We have a renewed purpose and a renewed mission in life to point other people back to this relational God of love who is calling them into relationship with himself. And and I love the way Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says this. Paul says we should put off the old self. He says because we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. I, I love that image that as you are walking in relationship with God, He is restoring and renewing us to be the kind of people he created us to be. Foundations matter. And I think when we have a right understanding of who God is, one God and three persons, I think it has the capacity to change everything. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to be gathered as your people. And we're reminded, God, that we are created to be a people who live and dwell in community first with you and then with each other. And God, we acknowledge that as we engage in community, it's really easy to be focused on ourselves, our own needs, our own wants. And yet when we look at your example as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're reminded that we're called to selfless, other-oriented community. But Jesus, we need your help. So would you grace us, Lord? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live as a sent people on mission to tell others about you, to draw them towards you, to point them towards you and the redemptive purpose that you can unfold in their life? Father, we love you and we stand in awe of the mystery of who you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.